Six years ago, Caitlin Statz and Travis Vengroff launched the White Vault, a psychological horror story set in the frozen archipelago of Svalbard. Today, the White Vault has accrued a cult following, and fans wait expectantly for what might happen next with the franchise. It's here we join Travis and Caitlin, fool and scholar, as they explore the land, air, and sea of Svalbard. You could easily, you can clip it onto something too if you just want to clip it to. Okay. We're, we're testing some audio equipment. There we go. And then if we can hold the conversation of any kind, that's the goal is to see how, how good we can hear it. How well it picks up our voices. I <laughs> see. Okay, zodiac. we can talk about anything. We can talk about how marvelous that hike was. That was yeah. And I didn't get in trouble for saying let's go further. It was Peggy's fault. <laughs> North of Europe in the Arctic Sea, Svalbard marks the midway point between the northern coast of Norway and the North Pole. And so it's become a hub of sorts for expeditionalists from survivalists to researchers to people who had to physically carve their way through the ice in order to build a base of operations. One such person is Jad Davenport. I'm Jad Davenport. I'm a National Geographic photographer. My name is Travis Vengroff. I'm the sound designer of the White Vault. And where are we? We are on the far northern coast, northwest coast of Spitzberg Island in uh, the Svalbard Archipelago. And if you look at what you're seeing right now is the the cliffs of Spergen. And to our, off to our left is nothing but sea ice. You could head up to the North Pole about 600 miles away. This is amazing, by the way. And we're, we're kind of floating right here in the pack ice. And we're not far away from Dane Island, which I want to say it was back in the 1800s. There was a guy named Solomon Andre, who was a balloon aviation expert. And he wanted to fly a balloon over to the North Pole. No one had flown up to the North Pole. No one had been to the North Pole. In case you have not heard. What Jad won't tell you is that he's also a filmmaker, a writer, a rescue diver. He was a war photographer where his work contributed to real-life war crimes investigations. It was after this he migrated to National Geographic, where he took his photography skills underwater to study the most isolated islands on Earth. So yeah, that's Jad. So, okay, um, so let's, let's start again. What is the, what is the century we're in? I'm, I'm trying to just catch up, home time. We would have been right. in the 19th century. So the intent was to go over the Arctic or to land? To go over the North Pole, over the North to fly Pole. over the North Pole. And this is uh, back in a time when balloons were really popular, you know, and you could, yeah. you could fly. So yeah, Solomon Andre was a Swedish adventurer, and he had a crew of three. There was a young man named Nils Strindberg, Okay. Uh, madly in love with, with uh, his fiancée. And of course, this was a celebrated journey. They were going to fly over the North Pole, so not far from here. Dane's Island, they set up a base. And to clarify, is that on Schwitzbergen on the west side? Yes, it would be okay. on the west side of the far western. So they, they set up. They tried it once, one summer, and they couldn't go. The winds weren't favorable. Okay. So they came back the following summer with a lot of fanfare, you know, everyone in everyone in Sweden wanted to claim kind of the North Pole and so these three guys they got their balloon and they had perfected a technique where they would trail ropes below the balloon in order to steer it and also to adjust their altitude so if you can imagine they'd have heavy heavy ropes that would keep them fairly low and they could kind of steer with sails and they got some good winds and they all hopped in they had provisions for I want to say 48 days 
they had sledges in case they landed on the ice and huge fanfare reporters and they lifted off from Dane's Island and they, they flew out over the water and then they came down and they dipped once in the water and everyone kind of held their breath and then they rose up again and they were bringing carrier pigeons with them to send messages back and they had buoys and everyone waved and they sailed off and they vanished. You know, these guys sailed off in, into nothingness. One of many to meet a similar fate, the Arctic wastelands give another stark reminder as to why in certain places, travel is not advised. But the spirit of adventure never stops calling. Some things are worth braving the odds to protect, and there are certain people willing to chance the elements to protect them. I'm Caitlin Statz, and we are here with... My name is Madalena Patashu, and I'm a naturalist, an expedition naturalist. Okay. And where are you from? I am from Portugal, Lisbon. When Madalena is not exploring the globe, she spends her time and effort educating those trying to better care for our ocean's ecosystem. And her lectures on ecotourism have brought her to universities across the globe. For those listening, what is a naturalist? So a naturalist, uh, when we travel on expeditions, we have a team of experts that come on board our ships, uh, which are the naturalists. And these are people who studied natural history. So they can be marine biologists, they can be ornithologists, they can be geologists, historians, archaeologists. And we travel with our guests around the world and we talk to them about the places where we go so they can learn in a totally different level and experience the places we go in a completely different way uh, as we are, you know, exploring around. So if a naturalist can start with any subject of their choosing, what was your chosen subject? Mine is marine biology. I studied marine biology and I've worked in the last, what, 15 years or so as a marine educator. So I work with what we call ocean literacy. So the idea is that you can communicate and transmit science connected to the ocean to anyone of any age and anywhere. So in Portugal, we have this big project from an ocean foundation, which is called Blue Generation. And our idea is to raise a generation that is very self-aware of the ocean and that we can take care of it at the same time as we use it sustainably, right? So the whole concept is that we are training our teachers on how to teach about the ocean and use the ocean on any subject. So from math to science to literature to art, you can use the ocean as a subject and teach your uh, students uh, with all of those subjects, right? And so that's our idea, is to create a generation that will take care of the ocean. So for those who can't see what we're doing, uh, what are you currently doing right now in this moment? So right now we are at the bridge of our ship, the National Geographic Resolution, and I'm on a telescope scouting the ice. We have different kinds of ice here. Um, it's sea ice, and we are trying to find polar bears. Outnumbering the population of humans, Svalbard and its surrounding seas is home to an estimated 3,000 polar bears. Classified as a marine mammal, Polar bears spend the majority of their lives drifting on sea ice, waiting for the odd prey to float within reach. A good example of one of our world's natural terrors, which brings us to a pertinent question. Our podcasts are generally very spooky. 
Okay. We try to entertain people by giving them something else to focus on, which is usually something a little bit scary. Okay. Have you had any experiences in the Arctic or Antarctic that you consider to be spooky or personally frightening that you would be comfortable sharing? Well, let me think of it. <laughs> scary, scary, scary. So one of the things we try here is to make things, you know, totally safe, right? So we avoid any kind of risks. That being said, we always know, like, you always have to be on the lookout. You always have to, you know, you always have to be aware of everything and everybody has to be with your eyes on everywhere to make sure that all goes well. I wouldn't say scary, but last year we did a pretty cool expedition, which was the Northwest Passage. And we went pretty early in the season. So it has too much ice and it was very likely that we wouldn't make it through, right? So many days throughout the expedition was always the expectation of, are we making it? Are we not? Are we going to be able to cross? Are we not? You know, the ice shift and changes with winds and currents and things like that. So for this uh, expedition you had through the Northwest Passage that you weren't able to get through, what kind of... You were. You were able to get through. We ended up, but there was was a point where it was... Very tricky. Okay. And, and we, we, yeah. But what kind of precautions are taken um, for if that happens and you have to turn around? Well, it has happened and it happened a lot. It's insane because everybody tried for centuries and everybody failed. It's full of like awful ending stories. Most of it ended very, very badly, uh, which is incredible, isn't it? Uh, and so for us is the big trill. A lot of people haven't heard of this, right? We've sailed around the world. We went around America. We went around Africa. We covered everything. We circumnavigated the world, right? But the last big, big chunk of crossing the world was the Northwest Passage. It was the hardest. It was very difficult. And many people failed. And when we say failed, a lot of people lost their lives. And it all dates back to that story Jad was telling us about. That team of 19th century expeditionalists attempting to fly to the North Pole with an air balloon. Last we heard, the team had just vanished. But there's more to it than that. So 30 years later, and of course his fiancée was devastated, she went on to marry another man, a wealthy man, but she always said that her heart was with Nils. And 30 years later, a sealing boat, a, a, a vessel that was after seals and walrus, was going in the, in the far northeast side of, of Svalbard, a little island called Kidvoya. And they happen to land on a beach. There's only one or two beaches on this entire island. It's just an ice cap. And the sailors were hiking along the beach, and they found a skeleton. And then they found another skeleton. And they found the tattered remains of the balloon crew. And the most incredible part was they found journals tucked in the bodies. And so, of course, they they went back and told, you know, Stockholm, they sent a ship back. Guys came up to investigate. And what had happened is they were able to piece it together from their journals. They had taken off and they had flown for just a couple of days. And then the, the balloon needs good weather to kind of lift off, but it was covered with dew and with snow. And the weight was, was bringing it down, so they crashed on the ice. But they were prepared. They had sledges, so they loaded up the sledges, and their plan was to head to Franz Josef Land, another area, and seek help. Um, they weren't quite sure where they were, so they were on the sea ice, the, the huge pan, it would have looked like this out here, just flat with some pressure ridges. And so they hauled these sleds with the hope of getting to, to help. And this is all written down in their journals, and they were in fairly good spirits. Nils was a young guy, I want to say he was in his 20s. 
you know, and he would take uh, measurements. They were still doing science, and then he would write short little notes to his fiance, yeah. saying how he missed her, and and they were pretty optimistic. And then eventually the, the ice started breaking up, and they were able to make it to this island. And they got to the island, and they had their sledges. They didn't have any tents that could really keep them warm. So they pieced together what they believe happened. They only lasted a, a few weeks on this island, even though despite having food and you had polar bears around. One of the suspicions is that Nils was killed by a polar bear, okay. that he was injured. They found some of his clothing. His underwear had rips in it that matched the tears on the outside of the pants as well. And so they believe that what happened was Nils died first. And they buried him. They covered him with rocks in a cleft in this, this little cliff. And then I believe the engineer died next. And then they think that Andre, the head of the expedition, may have committed suicide with morphine. He was stuck there, no hope. Um, so they brought these bodies back to Stockholm. They were bringing them back. They would, yes. So they did recover the bodies. They recovered the bodies. They recovered items from the, the, the campsite itself. It was a huge parade in Stockholm. I mean, a, a, basically a, a funerary um, procession. procession. Thank you. And, and they then brought them if, home. That's they brought them home, and then his his fiance, who had remarried at the time, said, "When I die, I would like them to cut my heart out, cremate it, and bury my ashes with Nils, where he's buried." And so, when she passed away, her her husband um, granted her wish and had her heart cut out of her body, cremated, and her ashes were sent back to rest with Nils Strindberg. Wow, that's. I've never heard, like, that's, that's very intense love. <laughs> it's intense, and they have his love letters to her from his, his journal. I want to say it's it was the 1890s. Oh, wonderful. And I think they discovered yeah. them 30 years later in the 1920s. Bears had gotten to them and kind of moved, so they found vertebrae here and a pelvic bone there. And, oh, my. Um, but, yeah, they, it was just, and that the tragedy was they... They had supplies, but they weren't prepared for the cold. A tragedy akin to an FNS tale and the perfect end to our first look into the mysterious and brutal world of Svalbard. We have a couple of new people for you to meet before long, but we'll leave it here for now. These interviews were recorded using a prototype of the Nomino sound capsule. Special thanks to Stein Begustel and the Nomino team for sponsoring these recordings and letting us play with their amazing technology, allowing these interviews to take place outside in 20 km per hour winds, during a Zodiac landing and while breaking through pack ice. Edited and produced by Dane Leonardson. Music by Brandon Boone and Dane Leonardson. A special thanks to Madalena Patasho and Jad Davenport. Thank you for listening and try to keep warm. adventures. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, 
a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.